The great thing about VSA is it is you will find a little bit of everything there. It's a little bit uh, it's a little bit like the bar scene of Star Wars, the original movie. I mean, there is everything there. And so if you can't find something there, you're probably not, <laughs> not going to find it. Hello and welcome to the Voices of Vision Leaders podcast. I'm Dominic Loricella, standing in for Lee Nosicki. And today's guest is the MC for our upcoming Executive Leadership Conference, Kevin O'Connor. Kevin teaches graduate students at Loyola University of Chicago. He is a professional speaker specializing in physician and nurse leadership. Vision Serve Alliance's 2022 Executive Leadership Conference takes place in person in Tampa, Florida from April 3rd to the 6th. It features a host of keynote speakers and presentations and will reflect on the impact that the blind and visually impaired communities have on society as well as share ideas for a transformative future. Kevin, welcome today. Ah, oh, thank you very much, Dominic. Can you start by telling us a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, I suppose with regard to Vision Serve Alliance, um, I have been um, drafted into the blindness movement because one of my kids is blind. And so he's 33. So from four months old, we were we belonged to a club that we never thought we were going to have to belong to. So uh, I um, obviously we're helping him throughout his school career and into his uh, business career. Uh, but also I was, I had the opportunity to speak to a lot of schools for the blind, a lot of organizations for the blind. And, uh, that's how I got connected up with VSA. And tell me about, uh, your career. How did that sort of, um, blend with your career, watching your son grow up, being able to, you know, exist in this community and, and maybe help others recognize it a little better. Sure. Uh, well, I taught, uh, I taught third and fourth grade, and then I taught junior high and high school and adults, uh, professional school. Uh, but somebody always asked me, how did you how, how did you learn how to speak to physicians? I said, I taught third and fourth grade. And they usually laugh, and I don't mean it to be sarcastic. I mean it really. Uh, if you've ever been around a third or fourth grader, they kind of absorb information like crazy. You can actually see how learning is happening. And when I'm teaching doctors, I'm really teaching them not anything that they know or learned in medical school. I'm teaching them all the stuff they didn't know, like business and presentation skills and try to have some executive presence and impact other people on their team. So um, <clears throat> I started doing that and I was teaching and then I, uh, I have three master's degrees, one in uh, education, one in counseling psychology, and then one in spirituality. And so I combine those those three and almost everything I do. Um, and uh, that got me to, I've been at Loyola now for about 32 years. I'm not a, what they call a full professor, so I don't have to attend committee meetings. <laughs> but I do get to teach every semester. I teach about seven classes a year at Loyola. And, and my professional speaking is speaking to physician leaders, people who are going to lead other doctors or nurses who are going to lead other nurses. And um, uh, uh, and then when I get a chance, any chance I get, I speak to uh, groups that are serving the blind because of my personal connection with them. So that's kind of how the career started. And, you know, I think it's like a lot of things. I don't know if this has ever happened to you, Dominic, but uh, the, the, the client kind of finds you uh, or the audience decides what you're good at speaking about or that kind of thing. I was at a funeral yesterday for fella I taught with maybe 35 years ago in a high school. <clears throat> and I heard he died. They had a memorial service. And when I walked in, I'm looking at teachers <laughs> that I have not seen in 35 years. 
people who are my fellow faculty members in this high school. I haven't even been to the high school in 35 years. And um, one of them came up to me and, and mentioned my son's name, my older son's name, because she had met him at his high school maybe 38 years ago. And she remembered his name. I said, you remembered his name? She said, you'd be surprised at what I remember. <laughs> and uh, somebody else came up to me and said, you know, you, I remember you gave that talk here. And then she named the date. It was in the 80s. And I was sitting here and you were over there. And she kind of, it was implanted in her memory. And I thought to myself, I wonder if uh, those of us in the vision community are aware of the word that you used a little while ago, you said reflect on our impact. I wonder if we do that enough, not in an egocentric way, but in a way that really reminds us of what we've done, the outcome. So for example, my wife and I remember the names of the teachers that we had. We know the name of the person who came to our house from the lighthouse when our son was an infant. In fact, we met her last year Accidentally, she lived next door to a, a friend of ours. And we, we saw her walking up to the thing. We said, is that you? And she said, oh my gosh. She knew my son's name immediately. So I think, I think when we all think about our career, when I think about my career and the accidental happenings that happen in our career, and that happens for all of us, it's never a straight line. It's a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Um, sometimes it's two steps forward and a half a step back, three steps forward, a couple steps back, but it's always movement. And um, I think I'm, I'm looking forward to the Florida conference because when we reflect on our impact, I think it gives us a direction for the future step that we're gonna take. I don't know if that answers your question, Dominic, but. <laughs> yeah, no, that was that was great. I wanted to um, go a little more into that. So at the conference, of course, we're going to have a lot of speakers, um, both in the visually impaired community, and, yeah. you know, speakers who talk to, uh, you know, their leadership coaches, um, there's, there's going to be a, a, a wide variety of people here. I think, you know, what, what's your opinion on hearing all these different voices and getting to experience, you know, maybe a community that people aren't as familiar with? Yeah, I think, I think the magic is in the mix. Uh, a friend of mine told me that a long time ago. He said, don't focus on just one thing, maybe my thing, but especially at these kinds of conferences, this is a big mixing bowl. And Lee is the chef and she is stirring all these ingredients together so that we're gonna learn together, but we're also gonna learn in the hallways. Uh, we're gonna learn when we sit down for breakfast with somebody that we don't know. And so I think that's what we wanna do. We wanna bring ourselves together, but I want to bring my full presence there. A friend of mine says, be present and have presence. So you could be present at this meeting and not bring your full presence to the meeting. You could sit at a table with a bunch of strangers and not say, by the way, my name is, who are you? Uh, we would prefer to just be quiet. And then we're not going to have a learning experience, right? So I think that's something to think about. So I think when you come to a conference like this, even if you're on the more introverted side or a little shy, this is a good time to rev up your batteries and at least be ready to say, I'm so-and-so, tell me about you. A friend of mine said, there's two kinds of people in the world. She's, she said, people who walk into a room and say, here I am, or people who walk in the room and say, there you are. 
And I think this conference is a wonderful time to walk in and say, there you are. I'm pretty introverted myself and having the yeah. opportunity to do these interviews with yourself in the past couple episodes with the speakers that yeah. we're going to have. Yeah. A lot of times I feel very ignorant to the subjects. You know, I don't really know what the right questions to ask are, right. um, but I, I really just enjoy hearing what everyone has to say and, and, and taking something from it and, and learning more. Yeah. One of my professors in college, uh, in graduate school actually said, he was teaching us to be counselors. And he said, always be the dumb nut. Be the one who asks the obvious question. Be the one who, quote, doesn't know. He said, because really, you don't know when it comes to somebody else. And he said, let them be the expert. So, you know, I think you have a terrific advantage when you say, I really don't know anything about this or about the person I'm interviewing. I think that's a great advantage because then you can just let your curiosity go crazy. And an introvert and extrovert you know, the, I think we set up a false dichotomy, like somehow extroverts are way better at this. They're not always better at this. Sometimes they draw too much attention to themselves. Whereas people who might be classified as introverts or people who have to kind of store up their battery, it's really an energy issue between introvert and extrovert. You know, I'm an extrovert, so I get energy by being with people. But then when they're not there anymore, I'm like crashed. <laughs> and uh, introverted people come in with a full battery and slowly it starts going down and they just have to regulate that, that energy. During the pandemic, when I wasn't seeing anybody, you can imagine I was going crazy. And I talked to a friend of mine and I said, uh, I think I'm becoming an introvert. And he laughed and he said, you can't become an introvert, Kevin. It's a gift. <laughs> so you can imagine what he was. <laughs> You talk about the pandemic a little bit. Uh, there was the virtual uh, conference. Yeah. I know you said you were a part of that. Do you want to tell us a little bit about uh, your experience with that? Well, I think one of the things with the virtual conference is it's really convenient and it's really, it keeps us together and organized. But I think one of the problems with, uh, with it um, is that it becomes so convenient for us. We don't make the extra effort to kind of come and meet in person. We don't get a chance to really see people. And I think one of the problems with that is that we, we sort of, um, I don't know what the right word is. I think we, we kind of maybe take for granted what, what the value is of this person-to-person -person contact. I mean, Lee's making a, you know, the organization's taking a risk here. A lot of places are getting ready to come back live. And yet, is, are people going to show up? You know, are we going to be there? And not only are we going to be present, but will we have our full presence there? Because then you get there and you say, gee, I haven't done this for a while. I mean, I've done some live conferences in the last couple of months. I have to learn how to pack my suitcase all over, <laughs> over again. And I used to be at the airport three times a week uh, before the pandemic. So I think we're all starting to learn our, we're starting to kind of figure things out. You probably have heard about a, a there was something that's been bandied about for a couple of years called the new normal. You probably have heard that. And so a doctor friend of mine said, and my wife said, I hate the term new normal. She said, a doctor friend of mine said, I like the term now normal. Cause he said, new normal, he said, creates anxiety. Now normal is temporary. He said, it's today. But he said, next normal is something I have some control over. What am I going to do next? And then the last one is the no normal. And this is a commitment. I am never going to do that again. Right? And so there's a lot of hospitals, for example, that are saying, we are never going to be unprepared for this kind of a thing 
again. There are schools that are saying, we really need to prepare for being able to shift quickly. And we're never going to do what we did before, which is send teachers and kids home, but not teach anybody how to do Zoom, right? A lot of teachers had to figure that out for themselves. And it was a mess. Um, and, and a lot of governments have that. But we can do a next normal. We can have some control. And then I think to myself, in addition to all these other things, what about me personally or, or any of us? What, what have we learned from the last couple of years that have really shaped us and that made us a little different, that's given us new kinds of skills? Uh, it may not be what we really wanted, but what is it that we, what meaning do we have coming out of this thing? And so, uh, you know, I think the, the changes that it has wrought on us um, have been, it's really helped us communicate virtually, but I'm, the more I'm doing live conferences, the more I'm seeing the wisdom that Lee has of, of really making a conference live because there's nothing like kind of that energy back and forth, but it's gonna be up to all of us as participants to, to really bring our full presence to that meeting too. It's not just a place to absorb ideas, it's a place to exchange ideas. So being that this is going to be in person, there's going to be, you know, we're in this now normal. What can people expect for people who maybe aren't familiar with executive leadership conference? What is leadership coaching? What do people go over? What are some of the speakers going to be talking about? Well, I think one of the things that, that we want everybody to talk about, both in the sessions with the speakers and outside the sessions in the hallways, is um, what can we do to provide more impact uh, for people in the blindness uh, community? What, what can we do to serve the society that we're in and not just expect them to serve us? And how can we do so in a way that um, people see our contribution as, as valuable? So I, I, what I would hope that we do at every session is, you know, they say that, that every, Everybody in a, in a classroom or in a presentation is kind of asking a number of questions that they never say out loud. One of those questions is, so what? <laughs> and the other question is, now what? So when you say, so what, in a classroom or a presentation, you're trying to extract meaning from the presenter. It may not be what the presenter is even saying, but it's something going on for you. Then you say, now what, as you walk out. And you're either going to do something with that information, or it's just going to be in a file folder somewhere. Um, it may come out of that file folder in a year or two, may come out in a day or two. Uh, but the other questions that they ask that they never say they're going to ask are, can you help me solve my problem? Can you improve my condition? Uh, is this relevant to my life? And so we even ask those questions when we're in the hallway talking to other people. So I think it's something to really play, play around with from the standpoint of how can we, how can we actualize what we're, at, what we're learning? And then how do we do that for not just our good for people that have vision problems? How do we do that for the good of society so that we're contributing members to society as well? Yes, we have to look out for things that society, quote, quote, can do to us if we're not careful. But we also need to do, um, how, how can we contribute? How do we get on boards so that we have some voice? 
How do we make sure that I get better and better at my profession? How do I lead better with other people? How can I bring um, younger and newer folks into the profession that they may not have ever considered before? Uh, but we're going to invite them in and, and teach them. So the great thing about VSA is it is you will find a little bit of everything there. It's a little bit uh, it's a little bit like the bar scene of Star Wars, the original movie. I mean, there is everything there. And so if you can't find something there, you're probably not going to find it. But hopefully you'll also find the ones you didn't expect, the ones you meet at breakfast or at lunch, the ones you run into in the uh, you know, in, in a, you're just standing around and you say, I'm so-and-so, tell me about you. That's all you have to say. And you'll immediately have a conversation. So tying all those subjects together, I wanted to ask you, you know, personally, as a, as a leadership coach, as a speaker, what's, what yeah. sort of advice do you have for those who aspire to be stronger leaders? Well, I think one of the things to, especially when you're aspiring to be a, a better leader is to be better at keeping in touch with the people who you are leading. Uh, sometimes we get too far ahead of them and we don't walk side by side with them. And so when we get too far ahead of them, they're disconnected from us. The other thing I think is to know I have, uh, I, I have to collaborate. In a sense, leadership is more of a horizontal movement than it is a vertical movement. In the old days, it was vertical. Somebody's on top, somebody's on the bottom, leader on top, other people on the bottom. Now we're side by side. So we're more horizontal. I have some skills, you have some skills, Lee has some skills, we can all collaborate together. I don't have to pull the, I'm better than you, I'm bigger than you, I know more than you do, you know. The window washer at O'Hare Airport knows a hell of a lot more about window washing than I do. And it's a, and it's a wonderful thing to see her work. It's beauty in motion. Uh, watching a physician implant, uh, uh, you know, a pacemaker into a patient, that too is a beautiful experience. Uh, now, clearly, neither one of those can do the other one's job, uh, but they're both important jobs. And so they're both jobs that require their expertise. And so while we may value the doctor with more money, of course, and all that stuff, we would certainly notice if the window washer at O'Hare Airport takes a six-week vacation. <laughs> so uh, what I'd like, to, like all of us to think about is we all are on a plane together, uh, a, a plane meaning we're all on a horizontal surface together moving forward. Dr. Dreikers, the famous psychiatrist from Chicago said, now this guy's a psychiatrist. He said, I don't listen to people's words. He said, I watch their feet. He said, I listen to the tongue in the shoe not the tongue in the mouth. He said, the tongue in the mouth says stuff that can go anywhere, words go everywhere. He said, but if I watch what you do, watching the feet, he said, feet only move in one direction. And he said, I can see which way you're moving. And so I think that's more of what you talked about earlier was reflecting on our impact. Where have we been? Where are we going? What are some things we are already doing right? And where are some things we need to, change in order to cope with the tomorrow that's going to come. And you noticed in your own experience, whether it's personal experience, professional experience, that impact of, of change in your career when it comes to the blind and visually impaired communities? Have you seen barriers be broken down? Yeah, I mean, the people that work, for example, in the schools for the blind, 
I mean, when I started with them, it was mostly blind kids in those schools. Now it's multi-disabilities in those schools. In fact, they are the schools for multi-disabilities and, and they have blindness as part of it. And when you think about what they've had to cope with and change and how they have to negotiate with the legislatures for money and how they do that with school districts, it's a great model for adaptation. They used to be just a school for the blind, just a school for the deaf. That's really not, I don't think that's the case anymore. Um, and, and itinerant teachers, they used to just do one or two things. Now they not only have to teach the kid, they have to inform the family, they have to juggle schedules, they have to figure out how do I teach literacy to someone one day a week? If, if your neighbor and my neighbor who had kids in the regular school, if we said, we're only going to teach your kid how to read once a week, <laughs> can, you, can you imagine the uproar that would happen? And yet, um, we say to blind kids, I'm just going to teach you how to read one day a week, two hours a week. I think we can fit in two and a half hours, maybe, but we'd have to negotiate that. It's, it's remarkable. It's, it's, it's sad because we're a small group of people. And that's why I think coming together for something like this, uh, and it's not just children. I mean, it's for adults too. How many underemployed, very capable people are out there who are blind or visually impaired? And the only reason that, that they're underemployed, underpaid, is because of their perceived disability by other people. And then of course we hold up models of people that have overcome, you know, Helen Keller and all those people. Well. You know, there are people in our community that are just as remarkable in terms of that, not only because of their triumph over visual impairment or with visual impairment or blindness, but also people who have uh, uh, done wonderful things for small and large communities. And so we want to be part of that. And we want to be part of that without people looking at us like, boy, I'm glad it's you, not me. We, we, we just want to be uh, considered a fellow citizen, all on a horizontal plane. We just had a sportscaster in Chicago who died, pretty famous guy. He was a sportscaster, totally blind from birth. He covered basketball, baseball, golf, <laughs> everything. And, you know, I think one of the things that he would say that many people have said who've accomplished is he didn't want to be called amazing. He wanted to be called a sportscaster. And too often, People say, boy, you're amazing. You were able to cross the street. <laughs> well, you know, we wouldn't say that to somebody who's, who's sighted. So I think when we can start helping people get beyond that kind of uh, understanding or misunderstanding of us, I think that'd be a great testimony to the kind of work that Lee does and that we all do. Yeah, I think that's been my favorite part of this whole process so far, like I said earlier, has been talking to, you know, individuals that I probably wouldn't have had the chance to talk, not just talk to, but to listen to, um, and, you know, other aspects of my life. Uh, so I'm, I'm curious, like, what's your, what's your, I guess, what are you most anticipated for at the, at the conference? Well, I'm only going to be there for um, uh, the cocktail hour. <laughs> so, uh, so the cocktails. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm coming in. I, I live in Chicago, but I'm coming in from another engagement in Arizona. And then um, 
Lee wants me to be the master of ceremonies for the cocktail hour. Uh, I'm going to be able to, I think, go to a session maybe Monday morning, but then I have to come back to Chicago because I teach uh, at Loyola. So I'm going to miss some of the conference, but I'm looking forward to meeting people at the cocktail hour. And again, that's what we talked about before. My name is so-and-so. Tell me about you. That's a great place to meet people is the cocktail hour. And so that's what I'm looking forward to is uh, that initial networking. Uh, and, and I think the the thing to think about is that there are people out there who feel awkward in those situations that they're like, oh God, who am I going to meet? Am I going to meet anybody? You know, it's memories of junior high and high school, right? Where you were not at the cool kids table. And uh, I, was, I was invited to Dallas once for a party for people that fly a lot for American Airlines. And uh, so I had missed a few of those and I went to one. And these are big league people, really, really important quote, uh, and uh, rich quote people. Uh, and I'm not, but I just flew a lot because of my job. So they invited me to go and you meet the president and the CEO and stuff. And I noticed there was a cool kids table. I don't know, Dominic, if you ever experienced the cool kids table in high school, but um, I was not a member of the cool kids table in high school. Uh, and the chief pilot was there and the chief flight attendant and all these people are laughing and joking and drinking. And I see this poor guy over in the corner doing nothing, holding a drink, looking at himself like, oh my God, why did I come here? Nobody's talking to him. He's all by himself. So, you know, I told you I'm an extrovert. So my job is to go after the lost sheep, right? So I go up to him and I said, hi, I'm Kevin. What's your name? He looked at me like, oh, thank God somebody's talking to me. Well, I wind up talking to him. Turns out, you know, I said, what do you do for a living? He said, I own Northern California. Well, wow, this guy's really, <laughs> wow, he's rich. So I said, would you like to meet the chief pilot? I bring him over and I introduced him to the chief pilot. All of a sudden he's in with the kids, right? They're having a good time. There's another young woman over there. I go over and introduce myself to her. She looks at me like, thank God somebody's talking to me. Uh, she owns Southern California. Okay, come on over. You know, you can talk to these people. So, so I think our job in that very first time we're together, the cocktail hour, uh, is to say to ourselves, who can I meet? Because they want to meet me too. We both have something we can exchange. We're both on level ground with one another. And if I push myself to go outside and I meet people, this is gonna be a tremendous conference, but it's not always in our nature to do that. Sometimes we think, well, I'll just go to the meetings and I'll take notes. Yeah, you can do that. But you miss about probably 75% of what's really going on at the conference, which is the exchange of ideas between the participants there. You brought up your son earlier. Yeah. I just wanted to ask on a personal note, you know, what was it like raising him and seeing him grow up and you know, experiencing being able to learn about the the blind and visually impaired community as a father. Yeah, we uh, were we were um, very lucky in that we had a really good doctor, and we had really good services. And um, if it wasn't for those people, we'd be dead. You know, um, we when I started going around the country talking to the blind schools. And teachers, I, I used to be teachers, so I was doing teacher training and stuff for them. It occurred to me how it, it struck me how many people did not have those good services. They were on the other side of the street where the school district there wasn't so good. And the other side of the street, the school district was good. So we learned how to work with the school district to negotiate with them to get the most we could from people. We, we hooked up with other parents 
And I think that really helped. And then we treated him as a normal person. So I would go to the grocery store. I say, you want to go with me? Sure. And I'd say, take your cane with you. And he said, that's okay. I'll, I'll grab your elbow. I said, well, then you won't be able to help me shop. So he got his cane and I said, see if you can find some ketchup. And so he went looking for ketchup and okay, you got that. Now start looking for it. So we would split up and I think it started to give him the confidence and skills. He went to, after he graduated from George Washington University in DC, he had a double major in economics and political communications. He had an internship with Hillary Clinton for a while and he was on NPR and NBC News uh, as, as a worker, as a reporter. And um, so he had great internships. And then he went, uh, National Federation of the Blind has these places throughout the states that will teach, they'll accelerate your braille learning and your orientation mobility. So he went to one of those in Louisiana, the Louisiana School for the Louisiana Center for the Blind. And he started really getting into braille. And his orientation mobility was already good. And then he took um, shop class with power tools. Uh, in the dark, of course. <laughs> and um, so you're walking in, think about this, no, Dominic, you're walking into a room with power tools and everybody operating a power tool is blind. So uh, the guy that was there um, had that everybody had to finish a piece of either furniture or something before they could graduate. And I think my son did an inlaid chess checker thing. But he would give a piece to the instructor and the instructor would feel it, he was blind too. And if it wasn't perfect, he threw it over his shoulder and said, do it again. And uh, afterwards I talked to the instructor and I said, man, you're really teaching people a lot about woodworking. He said, no, Mr. O'Connor. He said, it's not woodworking. He said, I'm teaching them confidence. Ah, got it. So I think that's the thing that I learned that we were doing and still still do for all of us in our family, not just Corbin, uh, is to try to instill connection and confidence and communication and contact. And, and that makes for people who are independent. And um, so that's the, that's the thing that's, that's most important. An optometrist, my optometrist told me when Corb was first diagnosed as a baby, he said, just don't compare your vision to his vision. He said, what's normal for him is normal for him. What's normal for you is normal for you. And of course I disregarded that <laughs> advice for many years, wondering what Corb saw. And then I realized it, it's probably not important that I know what he see or not see. Uh, but you know, the important thing is the impact we have, the significance we have on society. That success is nice, significance is even better. And so, um, so I'm looking forward to I hope you're going to be there, Dominic. We'll have a drink together. If not, uh, I'll toast you. And I'm looking forward to seeing everybody in Florida. It's going to be a lot of fun. Thank God for people like Lee who uh, are the magnet to bring us all together. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you again, Kevin, for joining us today. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. If you'd like to learn more about Kevin O'Connor, you can visit his website at kevinoc.com. Reminder that VSA's Executive Leadership Conference takes place in Tampa, Florida, on April 3rd to the 6th. On behalf of Lee Nasahi and all of VisionServe Alliance, thank you again for listening and stay tuned for future episodes of Voices of Vision Leaders.